This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Rat. There are few universal truths in role-playing games, or in games in general. Oh sure, people will say things like never split the party, or however far you travel, there will always be exactly one random encounter. But those rules get broken all the time. However, there is one rule that comes as close to universal as possible in RPGs of the tabletop and video game varieties. The first adventure is always rats. It's enough of a truism that even jokes about it are now reaching their pimply-faced teenage years. For example, back in 2004, console and computer RPG The Bard's Tale used it as a particularly nasty joke. The titular character, the bard, enters a tavern and attempts to impress a comely barwinch by ridding her basement of rats, as adventurers are supposed to do. But he quickly discovers that the rat is a giant, fire-breathing super-rat, and the tavern's patrons have endless fun sending adventurers to get beaten up by it. Now, The Bard's Tale by In Exile Entertainment, and published by Vivendi and Ubisoft, is a humorous tongue-in-cheek send-up of the electronic RPG genre, and the main character, the bard, is a snarky, genre-savvy anti-hero. And it should not be confused with The Bard's Tale, a 1985 computer role-playing game designed and programmed by Michael Cranford, which is a much more straight-laced dungeon-crawling adventure. But it isn't a coincidence that the games share the same name. Well, technically, the 1985 one was called Tales of the Unknown, Volume 1, The Bard's Tale, but that's neither here nor there. It's no coincidence that the games share similar appellations. The 2004 Bard's Tale was meant to be a remake of the 1985 Bard's Tale, but in exile couldn't secure the legal rights. Incidentally, if you're wondering whether the 2004 Bard's Tale is worth playing and you're not already sold on the idea of a spoof of every genre trope known to gamers, let us sweeten the deal by pointing out that it includes voice acting by Carrie Elwes and Tony Jay. But back to the rats. In role-playing games, you rarely fight normal rats. And that's because normal rats aren't much of a threat. Seriously, we can say that from experience. See, we, well, one of us, lives in a city that was recently named the rattiest city in the United States by the Orkin Pest Control Company for the second year in a row. And recently, during some building construction, a displaced rat managed to make its way into our apartment. After several unsuccessful attempts to trap the little bastard, we luckily happened to catch it by surprise one night and were able to engage it in direct melee combat. And we won in one round. We didn't even lose any hit points. But we did gain 25 experience points. The thing is, as we've been forced to learn by recent circumstances, rats are fascinating creatures. Disgusting, but fascinating. And some of their most fascinating traits are also what make them so hard to control. For example, rats are neophobic. That means they distrust anything new in their environment. New foods, new wooden platforms with spring-loaded wire bits of unknown purpose, new poisons. And that's why, when you're trying to trap a rat, it's important to gradually acclimate rats to the traps and to the bait before you actually set the traps. And even then, 
it can be very difficult to get a rat to accept new food. See, rats begin learning what foods are safe before they are even born. Fetal rats absorb odor-bearing particles across the placenta, and so they learn how their mother's food smells. This continues after birth, during nursing, as their mother's milk also contains odor-bearing particles. So rats learn to prefer the foods their mother knew was safe. And then there's rat breath. See, rats are communal creatures. Often one rat will explore, and when it encounters a new food, it will test it by eating a very small amount. When it returns to the nest, other rats smell the food on its breath. Thus, rats learn to recognize safe foods by sniffing the breath of other rats. But rat breath also contains particularly stinky chemicals. So after one rat has eaten from a source of food, other rats who come upon the food can smell the rat breath on the food. Now, all of this is very important because rats have a major weakness when it comes to dangerous food. Rats can't vomit. If they eat something dangerous or poisonous, they're stuck with it. And they generally respond by drinking copious amounts of water or eating large amounts of inedible absorbent matter like clay. That's why, in general, when rats have been poisoned, they leave their nests in search of water. Generally speaking, when we're talking about pest rats, we're talking about two different species. First, there's the Norway rat, or Rattus norvegicus. They are also called brown rats, street rats, or sewer rats. The Norway rat is about 7 to 10 inches long, brown or gray in color, and weighs about 11 ounces. They are omnivorous. They can eat almost anything. And while they prefer grains and cereals, they will also kill fish, sparrows, and ducks. Norway rats have an excellent sense of smell, but poor eyesight. They have powerful jaws and teeth, and they're excellent burrowers and they tend to enter homes through the lower elevations. They are excellent at finding damage in home foundations and will even tunnel their way into homes. The second common species of rat is the black rat, or ratus ratus, also called the ship rat, roof rat, or house rat. Black rats, despite the name, can range from black to brown and are smaller than their Scandinavian cousin. They are also omnivorous, but prefer nuts, fruits, and seeds, but will also eat lots of grains and cereals. Thus, they are a bane to farmers, destroying everything from sugarcane to wheat and corn. The black rat is an adept climber. They love to climb trees and, from there, leap onto the roofs of houses. And from there, they gain access to attic spaces. Now, interestingly, both black rats and Norway rats originate from the same place in the world. Can you guess where? If you said Asia, you're right. Both the black rat and the Norway rat evolved from similar ancestors about 1.2 million years ago. Norway rats evolved in the plains of Mongolia and northern China. Black rats evolved in southern China and India. At some point in the distant past, rats discovered that humans were an excellent source of food and shelter. And thus, they became a human-dependent association that biologists call commensalism, which is an ecological relationship in which one species becomes dependent on another without having any reciprocal effect. Contrast this with symbiosis, where two species mutually benefit each other, and parasitism, where one species benefits from another while also doing it harm. 
It isn't clear when rats first migrated to the West. It was originally believed that the first black rats traveled to Europe with humans during the Crusades. But black rat skeletons have been discovered in Italy that date back to the 2nd century BCE. Norway rats arrived in Europe many centuries later, and the exact details of their arrival remain unknown. Norway rat skeletons have been discovered in Germany that date back to the 9th century AD, and several naturalists record sightings of Norway rats in the 1500s. The naturalist Pallas once observed a mass migration of Norway rats swimming across the Volga River in southern Russia in 1727. By the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, the larger and more aggressive Norway rat had displaced the black rat in most urban centers. Rat catchers exterminated rats by the droves, but they also captured many live rats. Rat fights and rat races became common attractions, and rats were even eaten during times of famine. Rats were also selectively bred for their appearance and temperament, and eventually rats were domesticated. In the 1800s, rats were first used in breeding and psychological experiments, and they have remained popular laboratory animals due to the ease with which they can be bred and their physiological similarities with humans. It should be noted, though, that there is no evidence to suggest that Norway rats first appeared in Norway. So why are Norway rats called Norway rats? Well, no one is really sure, but it seems to be because English naturalist John Birkenhout named the species Rattus norvegicus in a 1770 book detailing the natural history of the British Isles. It seems he assumed the rats had come to England on Norwegian trade ships. And that wasn't the first time the wrong people were blamed for rat infestations. But to understand that, we need to discuss a little bit of British history. And we'll start with one of the most famous figures in English history. A figure so famous, even the Monty Python comedy troupe had a song about him. Oliver Cromwell. Well, actually, we have to start a lot before that. Way back in 1066 CE, the Norman family, led by William the Conqueror, invaded England. In order to administer their rule of England, the Normans relied on a system of nobles to govern the country. And that basically kicked off the feudal system in England. Now, in the early 1200s, a man named John inherited the rule of England as well as parts of western France. Technically, John was the King of England, the Duke of Normandy, the Duke of Aquitaine, the Count of Anjou, and the Lord of Ireland when he first took power. The problem was, Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine. Those are three substantial regions in France. And by controlling those regions, King John actually had more power in French lands than King Philip II, the actual King of France. As you might imagine, this made King Philip a bit upset. And so Philip did what any level-headed monarch would do when faced with the possibility that his greatest rival had more influence over his own kingdom than he did. He seized it all. Needless to say, King John wasn't too happy about this. In fact, he became obsessed with reclaiming his lands in France. And he began pouring money into fighting battles in France. Actually, mostly he began pouring money into losing battles in France. Now, John already had a reputation for ruthlessness, but he quickly added obsession and vindictiveness. He raised taxes and made increasingly ridiculous demands of his barons and vassals. And they eventually got tired of it, and so they did what any level-headed barons would do. 
They formed an armed rebellion and forced the king to sign a document that basically said that no one, not even the king, is above the law. And if the king breaks the law, it's up to the rest of the government to take him to task. That document was called the Magna Carta, which was Latin for the great document. And John signed it. And then he convinced the Catholic Pope to declare the whole thing a worthless scrap of paper. And so the barons rebelled. And by the time King John died, England was under the control of Louis of France, who was the son of King Philip II. The rest was under control of King Alexander II of Scotland, who was some rebel baron's buddy. The whole thing was finally settled after John died, and the few people who had remained loyal to him sent out a letter saying that if they made John's son Henry III King of England, he would sign the Magna Carta. He did, and they did. That is, he signed the Magna Carta, and the barons made him king. Now, the problem was that as Henry III grew up, he didn't really like the Magna Carta very much. Kind of like Simba the Lion Cub, he felt that a king should be able to do whatever he wanted. Under the Magna Carta, the barons of England expected King Henry III to ask for permission before raising taxes and to appoint the ministers that the barons demanded. Tensions grew. And the barons once again felt the need to force the king to accept their authority. In 1258, the barons drafted a series of reforms and withheld taxes until King Henry agreed to them. England was facing a lot of problems at the time, including civil unrest and famine, and so King Henry acquiesced. In 1265, in accordance with the reforms of 1258, a baron named Simon de Montfort gathered a council of elected officials in Westminster, a village outside of London. Now, when we say elected officials, it's important to understand that all of the officials were nobles, barons, and lords and the like, and they were elected by their peers. Each one represented a county or city in the Kingdom of England. Now, this wasn't the first such gathering in English history. Previous such councils had helped select monarchs and had served as advisors, but they lacked any real political power. But this gathering had wealth and political clout. And that basically laid the foundation for what would become the modern foundation of the British parliamentary system. In point of fact, with very few interruptions, the modern British Parliament has been meeting on the same spot since 1265. For those not in the know, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, yes, that's its full name, is a constitutional parliamentary monarchy. Yes, we know, that sentence is quite a mouthful. You're lucky we didn't throw in the fact that the Parliament is bicameral. Under the British system, the monarchy has the authority, but Parliament has the power. In essence, the British crown, the king or queen, is responsible for signing into law the bills written by the Parliament and for choosing the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister acts as the head of the royal government and also generally leads the Parliament as a member of the political party with the majority of seats. The Parliament is divided into two houses. The 650 members of the House of Commons are elected by the people of the United Kingdom and wield the majority of legislative authority. They make the laws. While he does not technically have to be, the Prime Minister has been chosen from the elected members of Parliament, or MPs, since 1902. The House of Lords is a little bit more complicated. 
92 members of the House of Lords are hereditary lords, essentially representing the nobles of the UK. 26 members are bishops of the Anglican Church. The other 750 or so members of the House of Lords are life peers. Life peers are individuals who have been granted the honor of serving in the House of Lords as a way of recognizing their service to the nation or their status, reputation, or background. Many are former political officials, judges, and business leaders. While the House of Lords generally cannot block the House of Commons from passing a law, they serve as a balance, reviewing the laws passed by the House of Commons, making amendments, and occasionally pushing bills back into the House of Commons for reconsideration. But we digress. Back to the story of Oliver Cromwell, the English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, and the misnaming of Norway rats. Following the reforms of 1258, there were some growing pains. But ultimately, things settled down and the system seemed to be working. Of course, there were some tensions between the monarchs of England and the Parliament, but that's to be expected. But things turned ugly again under the rule of King James VI of Scotland. What happened was this. Queen Elizabeth I of England died in 1603, and the only successor was James VI, the current King of Scotland. For the first time, the Scots and the English were ruled by the same king, even though they remained separate sovereign nations. Now, James VI had gotten used to the Scottish version of Parliament, which was fairly weak. But the English Parliament was much more assertive. James and his son Charles believed in the absolute authority of the king, which led James into a number of conflicts with Parliament during his rule, and ultimately, James ended up cutting the Parliament out of the government. Literally. He refused to call the Parliament to order, effectively suspending it. And this created some serious financial problems. Without Parliament, James could not collect taxes or raise income. And so James was growing increasingly broke. So the financial problems weighed on King James. But then a more pressing matter came up. See, James knew he didn't need much money if he never went to war with anyone. And toward that end, he had withdrawn England from the various conflicts that had grown out of the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire into a 30-year war known as the Thirty Years' War. Now, James wanted to secure a lasting peace with one of England's greatest military rivals, Spain. And so he wanted his son Charles to marry Maria Anna of Spain. And so, to resolve these issues, James VI recalled the Parliament to discuss the issue. The Parliament was affronted on two fronts. First, the idea of an alliance with Spain was simply unthinkable. Most of England was still hostile towards Spain after its attempted naval invasion of the country. Second, Maria Anna was a Catholic, and the current sentiment in England was that they wanted nothing to do with Catholicism, especially seeing as how the conflict between Catholicism and Protestantism had set the whole European continent to war. In 1625, King James died, and his son, Charles I, ascended the throne. And he had grown bitter towards the Parliament after watching his father's struggles. Over the next few years, hostilities grew as King Charles attempted to dissolve the Parliament, and he also struggled to raise money without it. Then, in 1640, King Charles clashed with the Scots over religious traditions 
and the Scots were so enraged that they invaded England. Charles had no choice but to recall Parliament. The Parliament agreed to finance the war, but they demanded heavy concessions from Charles. Charles, embittered, led 300 soldiers to arrest his five biggest detractors on the Parliament. And even he realized that that was one step too far. Shortly thereafter, Charles fled to Oxford and began raising an army. Civil war was inevitable. And now enters Feel free to sing along if you know the song. Cromwell was a member of Parliament when the English Civil War broke out, and when it did, he helped organize and command Parliament's own military force, the New Model Army. Cromwell was a born organizer and leader, and the New Model Army reflected his vision of a centrally directed, centrally funded, professional and virtuous army. And he always rode at the head of his cavalry. And they won. Repeatedly. Eventually, King Charles was forced to surrender and Cromwell had him executed for treason. Cromwell became the military leader of England, and through military conquest he also became the ruler of Ireland and Scotland. But his republic, for he was no king and never wanted to be, his republic was short-lived. Thanks to his execution of King Charles, and because he was a devout Puritan, his rule was divisive. He instituted blue laws, outlawing blasphemy, cursing, and drunkenness, and he rejected the idea of democratic rule. As rebellions against Cromwell became more common, he was forced to place parts of England and Wales under military rule. By the time he died in 1658 on the anniversary of his greatest victories against the Scots at Dunbar and Worcester, plans were already underway to restore the monarchy of England. In 1660, Charles II, son of Charles I, claimed the throne, and shortly thereafter, Charles' brother, James II, succeeded him. James II was a staunch Roman Catholic, and he, like his father before him, tried to circumvent Parliament, and when that didn't work, he attempted to fill Parliament with members loyal to him. He instituted policies favoring Catholicism over the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and he expanded the military all of which made him terribly unpopular. And so it was that the people of England called on James's own daughter, Anne, and her husband, Prince William of Orange, to depose James and claim the throne. And they did so. With no allies left, even in his own family, James II fled to France and was effectively deposed. This became known as the Glorious Revolution a.k.a. the Bloodless Revolution. But Parliament wanted to make sure that nothing like this could ever happen again. With William and Anne's blessing, they drafted a new document called the Declaration of Rights, and it became a proper law, the Act of Settlement. Effectively, it firmly defined the powers of the Crown of England vis-a-vis -vis the Parliament, made it illegal for an English monarch to maintain a standing army in a time of peace, and, most importantly, made it illegal for Roman Catholics, or anyone married to a Roman Catholic, to ascend to the throne of England. And that's why, in 1714, when Queen Anne died childless, 
there was literally no one to take over the throne. Anne's family, the Stuarts, were predominantly Catholic. All of the various people in line for the throne were disqualified, down to the 52nd successor, a minor German noble named George Hanover. And thus, King George I began the rule of the House of Hanover. And the House continued to rule England until, in 1917, the outbreak of World War I led to a major anti-German sentiment. That's when King George V dropped the German name Hanover and changed the name to the House of Windsor. Now, under the rule of the Hanovers, England became prosperous and powerful. In fact, it grew to be a major military and economic superpower. But when George I first took power and was then succeeded by George II, they weren't very popular at all. They were seen as foreigners, outsiders, there was a great deal of anti-Hanover sentiment. And around about the same time that the Hanovers claimed the English throne, infestations of brown rats began to appear in the British Isles. First in Ireland in 1722, and then in England in 1730. And so, because people were in the habit of blaming all of their problems on the Hanovers, they were nicknamed Hanover Rats and considered just another foreign invader. And by the way, that rule about how no Roman Catholics were allowed to sit on the throne of England, it was, of course, repealed by the Succession to the Crown Act in 2013. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>